The reading today is from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Well, hi, my name's Morris. I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch in Liverpool. And um, while I wish I was really and physically in front of you to share God's word together, I'm grateful for this opportunity to be beamed into wherever you are watching from. I'm just going to give you this opportunity to look up the passage in the Bible. Maybe you haven't got a Bible yet, you need to fish around the room or go to somewhere else in the house and get one or switch it on in your phone. And also there are people who've got kids, you might need to pass them snacks now or give them Lego, something like that. Uh, go and do that now, just while I explain that we're in this series in Mark's Gospel. Mark is one of the biographies of Jesus' life in the Bible. And we've called the series Recaptivated because we're really hoping that uh, Christians 
who see Jesus again will just find uh, that love they've had for him again. And if you're watching and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're watching. You hope you will begin to see a little bit about why we find Jesus so compelling and still relevant today. So hopefully that's given you a chance to switch on your phone, find your Bible. We're going to jump into Mark chapter 11. Now, I have been warned in the past about being overly political in my sermons. And so I'm going to try and avoid that today. But let's just say, I think we've all had enough of leaders who tell us to do something and then do something different themselves. It's very hard to trust, to follow a leader who you suspect is asking you to do the hard work while they are making it easy for themselves. Now, generally in life, we don't like being told what to do anyway. So we will find any excuse we can not to follow rules. And so we will easily hang on to that one. I can't trust the person in charge, so why should I do what they say? Now, the call of Mark's Gospel, this book about Jesus and his call in this book is this great phrase, repent and believe the good news. Now, just pause a minute to think what that means. It means turn your whole life around, including your most deeply held beliefs, and hand your life to the God who made you and believe instead the brilliant things that he says. But that is quite a call, isn't it? I mean, that is a bigger life change than stay home and save lives and protect the NHS. It's much bigger than that. The breaking in of God's rule, the kingdom of God, as Jesus describes it, has means, he said throughout the book, that we'll serve others, that we'll talk about Jesus, that we'll stop trying to cling on to all of the things the world says make success and we'll trust and follow Jesus instead. That is a big ask. And I'm aware, for some of the people watching this, that there is a huge cost to living that way with God in charge of your life. There's a huge cost to you of abandoning cherished beliefs about a good life, to accept God's view, that's very hard. It's painful. It is a struggle to launch yourself out into trusting God instead of just doing what you would like to do. I'm a human being. I get that. I understand. And I understand at this time that's particularly hard for some people. And there are other people, I guess, watching this, hearing me say all of that, and they can't imagine why you would turn your life over to God to be in charge of. It all sounds a bit fundamentalist and worrying. Well, I want to tell you, unlike some of the leaders we're familiar with, that while it is a battle to trust Jesus in that way, it is not because there is a single fault in him. There is nothing untrustworthy about him. If it is a struggle for you today to repent and believe the good news, I want you to see that Jesus is someone who can be relied on, a leader you can trust. I think if we see him as the way Mark shows us what he's like today, 
we'll want to trust him. We'll want to put faith in him. And that faith, as he describes, will lead us to pray and do crazy things. It will a faith that will it is a faith that will get you down into forgiving the worst people. But if you see Jesus as he is, your heart will be called to trust him. Last week, Josh talked to us about keeping things in the right perspective. And that's what this passage is going to do today. So raise Jesus in our perspective that we're called to trust him, hard as it may be. We're called to repent and believe the gospel. So let's see the first thing we see about Jesus today in Mark chapter 11. First thing, Jesus is the ruler who serves. So previously in Mark's gospel, since Jesus has been recognised by his disciples as this ruler sent by God, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. Now his followers are generally a mixture of amazed and defiant about that. They know there's a group of people who want to kill Jesus in Jerusalem and can't understand why he'd want to go there, particularly as he has a very successful healing and feeding people ministry in the place where he is. But Jesus explains again and again and again that he is heading to Jerusalem because he knows he will be rejected and killed there. That's why we're in Jerusalem here. While his followers are still working out what they could gain by being on the Jesus gravy train, Jesus is explaining he is deliberately heading to Jerusalem to die because he is serving everybody else in the world by dying for them. He uses this great phrase that his life is a ransom for many. He's going to pay the price for all the wrong things that other people have done by dying for them in Jerusalem. And so he set his face there. The disciples there just like, whoo, whoosh, totally over our heads that. We still just want you to tell us who's getting the best seats in the new kingdom you're bringing. Well, here he is, arriving in Jerusalem as king. And he is welcomed by the people in this passage, the people of Jerusalem, as the one who will bring in the coming kingdom of what they say is their father David, harking back to the very best king they'd had before. It looked like the kingdom of God is breaking in and everyone's loving it. The disciples must have been having a great time. But there are a couple of very strange things happening in this story that deserve a closer look. First of all, did you notice the strange spy novel intrigue at the start of the story? Now at the moment, I think it is the first and probably the only time that being a pastor is being like being a spy. It's true, because my meetings with people at the moment, which usually take place in my office or in my home or in a cafe, are taking place at the opposite end of park benches. Just me and one other person to stick with the rules. And of course, when you're having pastoral conversations with people, they're usually private, so you're at the opposite end of a bench, but talking very much like this, to uh, try and keep it anonymous. It feels like being in some sort of spy movie, as does this passage. Jesus says this mysterious thing, go into the village and untie a colt and give this mysterious answer if anyone asks you. And it works. And then, in the rest of Mark, we never hear anything else about it. It was, as Jesus said, they just let the cult go when Jesus 
they give Jesus answer. What's all this about? Well, I think it's underlining to the disciples and to us that everything that happens that's coming next is entirely under Jesus' control. He is about to be arrested. He's about to be tried and beaten and killed. It is his gift to do that or not to do it. He is in control of this situation down to the finest detail of knowing where they'll find a donkey, knowing what to say to the person so the people hand the donkey over. And of course, that makes his choices very interesting. If I had this power, I'd be like, hey guys, car showroom's open on the 1st of June. So uh, head down to the Ferrari showroom and say, the master needs that big red one. And then I would drive down Hope Street, waving with ticker tape and glory. But the very thing that Jesus chooses, when he could have set it up to do anything, the very thing he chooses is a donkey. Now, it was a never-been-ridden animal. That was traditionally what kings rode, a special sort of steed just for them. But it was still a donkey, not a charger or white stallion. That had been predicted hundreds of years before about the Messiah entering Jerusalem, but had been predicted because it was saying that the real Messiah would be marked by his humility. He chooses something that makes him look less than he is. So can we trust the one giving the orders? If following and repenting and believing in Jesus is costly for you today, can we trust him? Well, he's the only one with the perfect ability to organize things as he wants, and he chooses humility. He's recognised as a king because he is a king, but he so arranges it that he is not lording it over anyone. He's not demanding recognition or glory. He chooses humility. He appears less than he is, not more. Here's another strange thing. He enters Jerusalem and people welcome him as their king and their ruler, saying, God will save us through you. That's what Hosanna means and they quote this song from the first part of the bible from the book of psalms 118 they sing this song blessed is the one who comes in the name of the lord now i guess it's not totally unheard of to sing songs from other parades when you're welcoming victorious people so in my uh, university whenever the rugby team won for some reason we all used to sing in the bar it's coming home it's coming home football's coming home which is not a very accurate song for the rugby team so they just seem to be borrowing uh, a song from somewhere else to welcome Jesus but if you read Psalm 118 it is about a happy procession but it's not a procession to crown a king no, Psalm 118 was something people sang together as they carried their sacrifices up to the altar to be killed. So that's what they sang when they were taking something that was going to die in their place to make them right with God. Now who knows what the people singing understood about that, but Mark knows and Jesus knew 
that the celebration of his kingship going on here is because he is a king, a leader, who gives his life away for the sake of those who follow him. That's the thing worth singing about uh, in Jesus' rule. So I am able to say to you today, listen, Jesus is Lord of everything. He is the God who made the world. You should respect him. You should do what he says. He has the right to be obeyed by you. But I can say more. I can say more than that. Jesus sings this eternal song of humbling himself for the sake of others. When he chooses, he chooses humility. When he chooses, he chooses to die in our place. Seriously, he is the person you can trust. It's not only right to obey him, but he is trustworthy to be obeyed. Now we use this word repent, or Jesus uses this word repent. It's not a popular word. It's a word that feels odd to be putting out on the airwaves because it's so out of date. It's got a bad rap. Repenting means the misery of realising that you're wrong. Maybe even to you it means sort of like whipping yourself and feeling bad and being judged for the bad things you've done. But we don't just repent from bad things. We repent towards good things. For us, I think, we think, well, repentance is giving up the things that I like and turning towards the emptiness of life without the things I like. Repentance is like lockdown. We've repented from our former exciting lives into this diminished version. That is not what Jesus means when he says repent and believe. He's meaning repent, turn away from the dominion, the rule of bad things, towards this ruler who loves you, who lowers himself for your benefit, who chooses what's best for you at his cost every single time and marks his life with signs of humility, of making himself lower for the sake of others. I appreciate, I really do, that repentance for some people at this time is really hard. You are battling with something you know isn't part of God's kingdom. It is hard to turn away from self-righteousness, thinking you must be okay the way you are, to trust Jesus' grace. This stressful time we're in maybe has made something in particular more difficult for you. The call to serve that Jesus has been saying again and again and again is just something you fight with so much. And if you're struggling to repent, I do want to say, well, you've got to do it because Jesus is the king, he's the ruler. But also, as you see him, don't you want to repent? Don't you want to leave behind that stuff and let him lead you, the one who puts himself below us, the one who sets his face to do what's right for us, the one who chooses humility? I find it very hard to repent from chocolate to exercise. Hard repentance for me. But in a few weeks' time, I hope, <laughs> I will find it easy, much easier to repent from watching TV towards seeing my friends. No, it's not that I don't like watching TV. And in fact, I guess in a few weeks' time, I could be so sucked into watching TV that I don't want to let it go. But when the life-giving nature of seeing people I love 
is so amazing, it will draw me to repentance away from what's wrong. Well, repent towards Jesus because he is someone, a ruler, who is so much better than whatever you're leaving. Because he's the ruler who serves, who lowers himself, who sets on a path towards death because he loves you. Here's the second thing we see. We've seen Jesus is a ruler who serves. Secondly, we see he's a servant who judges. There have been moments over the last few weeks that I've wanted to like go mad and tear the place up, have a riot. So I'm so annoyed with our political leaders and system. But there is a reason I shouldn't do that and a reason you shouldn't do that, just to be clear. And that's because our anger, the Bible says, does not lead to the righteous life that God requires. Even if we are angry about something that is actually wrong, an angry response from us is likely to be twisted and damaging and hurt others and ourselves. Because we are wrong, we are sinful. But that's not true of Jesus. He always behaved rightly. And if we think that's true, we have to believe that it was the right thing for him to do to go into this holy religious building which was sacred to many people, to tear the place up, to destroy the livelihoods of the people who worked there, to commit this extreme act of blasphemy. What's more, we have to say it wasn't just vandalism of buildings that was okay, but vandalism of plants. The poor old fig tree, cursed on the way into the temple in the morning, dead by the evening. How is it all right for Jesus to do that? One of the things I often say uh, when we are sending emails out from the church to various people is like, Please don't send our emails which have my picture or signature or something on them if they still have grammar and spelling mistakes in them. That's my personal bugbear, my self-righteousness. I'm like, it has my name on it, so I don't want to be identified with poor grammar and terrible apostrophe usage. Well, Jesus, when he's clearing the temple, he quotes in verse 17 from the book of Jeremiah, where the temple then is called a den of robbers. And if you read the history of this temple in Jeremiah, the temple was the place that people were supposed to come and meet the real God. The building had his name on it. They were supposed to step in there to that building and see what he was like. But they didn't. The message was going out with lots of things in it that did not reflect what God was like. And unlike me, it doesn't really matter if anybody thinks I've got bad grammar except anyone except me. <laughs> it actually is important that people know what God is like. It matters. You know, if people are to be called to repentance by seeing how amazing God is, people are to be shown God's glory so they turn away from bad to good, and that's very difficult. It matters that they can go to the places with God's name on it and see what he's like, not see some fake, self-centred version. The temple in Jeremiah's time was destroyed for being like that. This one Jesus visited was a rebuilt version, 
And Jesus goes and visited the rebuilt version and said, this temple has the same problem. He looks around at these people selling animals so people can sacrifice them and says, you're making money out of people's need for God's forgiveness. You're setting up barriers to the poorest people coming in. That is not what God is like. Your heart is cold to God, and so you're stopping others entering. Your religion has become a way of you getting something for yourself, and that is not what God is like. And so when we see God in person, Jesus Christ, that is the thing he is angry about. Oh, we see that Jesus is full of generosity, of care, of endless grace and compassion, really, to those who want it. But if there are things with his name on it that are actually nothing like him, that will make him angry. Here's an example. Say you're growing a tree for a particular reason, to get the fruit from the tree to eat. And you discovered that your tree, while looking all green and leafy, actually doesn't have any of the fruit on it that you planted it for. In the end, you're going to give up on gardening that tree. And that's Jesus' own illustration, actually, when he curses the fig tree and then comes back from the fig tree and the, back from the temple and the fig tree has died. The temple is the fig tree. The temple has lots of leaves but no fruit. It looks all bustling, like there's loads going on. But instead of acting like a beacon to the world, advertising the God whose name is on it, inviting many nations to know God, well, it's just activity. Look under the leaves, there's no reality there. Here is the story of Mark's gospel. The king, God himself, has stepped into this world in the person of Jesus, and he is inviting people to repent, to turn away from what's wrong, and turn towards him, the gracious, loving servant who dies for them. And the sick and the poor and excluded are invited. And when they accept, these people who've been so excluded are transformed into agents of this self-giving kingdom of God. They become servants of all, like Jesus was the servant of all. They put others before themselves. They become fishers of people telling others about Jesus. They reach out and beyond themselves. Now that's the story of what God's doing in Mark's Gospel. Just say there's a religious community that bears his name, that identifies itself with the God of the Bible. But that community is not driven by inviting others to know God, but is just driven by the demands and preferences of the people in it. That community is self-righteous, thinking it's better than others who are outside it. That community, the people who need its welcome, are not welcomed. They are not self-giving. They are not servants of all. They don't look to reach others. They're just a temple, but without worship. They're just a tree, but without fruit. A God is patient and generous and forgiving about much. His default pose, the Bible says, is to be slow to anger and abounding in love. But when people's selfishness means he is misrepresented to the world, 
he is angry. That is what makes perfect Jesus angry. And he will not let that community, that family, that church that bears his name but doesn't look like him, he will not let it go undisrupted. It's interesting, the gracious king's anger is saved really in the end for religious hypocrisy. It's saved for the person who wants the benefits of God's name without serving or reaching others. That's what blocks this gracious call going out to the world. And so it was that this temple, as Jesus describes in the passage later on, this temple, the mountain it was on, was thrown down. It was destroyed. You won't find anything with God's name on it in that place today. Of course, it applies itself to us. The king is real and the king is humble and kind. He's a servant of all. Whoever you are, whatever life you're leading now, however messy, he came to serve you, to give his life for you, to buy you back, to turn what you have now to serving the real reaching out love of God. There are no bounds to who is invited to do that. But what he will not have is people with his name, Christians, self-comforting. A church which runs for the benefit of themselves, a Christian life that isn't open to service of people outside the church family, a person who says they're a Christian but has no care about the world God is reaching, that will make him angry, that type of hypocrisy. Now God replaced that temple after Jesus judged it with a new way of relating to him, we're going to see that in a minute. But it's possible to take the label of the new way, but still be like this old way, bearing the name, but not showing the character. Just if you see yourself in that, please remember he is a gentle, humble king. He has died to pay your ransom, but if you see yourself in that description, you may need a moment to go back to him and say, I see that in myself and I'm sick and I need a doctor. I see that in myself and I'm unclean and I need to be cleaned. Humble yourself. And can I say, we as a whole church at Christ Church Liverpool may need to do that together too. To really review, are we attached to God's name but not reflecting what he's like? Maybe this disruption we're in at the moment of not being able to do all the things we normally do, maybe it's a good chance to review and ask that question. Here's the third thing we see about Jesus. He's the judge who commands. As they come out of Jerusalem, Peter is surprised that the fig tree has died. And Jesus uses that as a chance to explain that now... That way of life is dead, the temple way. What does this new way of life, the one we've turned towards Jesus to get, what does that life look like? Well, the first thing he says is, it involves, verse 22, having faith in God. So instead of, I guess, having faith in your religious activity or faith in yourself, the new kingdom Jesus is offering involves having faith, putting your trust in God. But that's just a generic phrase, isn't it? What does it mean? 
Well, he mentions a mountain being thrown down into the sea. And I guess that's the temple mountain being thrown away for good. It's Jesus saying, that old way of living for me, uh, living for God, that people thought they were doing right, it's gone, it's thrown down into the sea, it's judged. That way of uh, relating to God that's basically covering up our failures with religious practice, it's gone. Therefore I tell you, he says, there is a new way of living in God's kingdom. Let's read the verses that come up on the screen. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So if we've done away with the way of living for God, which is doing religious service and ignoring other people, it's replaced with radical prayer and radical forgiveness that comes out of having faith in God. Now I guess in our circles we're used to that, we get it. The religion of works to please God, that's gone. Faith in God to be put right with him instead, that's what we have. But we have lots of questions about what does that look like day to day to be healed by Jesus, to be trusted by him, to, to trust him, to be a beacon of his serving love in the world. What does that mean me doing day by day? And Jesus says two things here. It means living in believing, radical, exciting, faith-stretching prayer. Now, of course, this verse has been abused to say, I can just name anything I want, and if I name it with enough faith, God will give it to me. And that's not what it means. But it's possible to be so obsessed with the abuse of it, we never get to the use of it. If we've thrown away the dead religion that has God's name but doesn't live in his kingdom, but we replace that with an everyday faith and trust in God, we will be praying for things that seem crazy and unbelievable and we will see answers to those prayers. The dynamic, exciting relationship with God that Jesus is offering will require you to be praying big prayers and seeking God to answer them all the time if you really do it. Of course it will. Because if repentance is hard, it involves doing crazy and difficult things. Leaving your old life behind and living towards Jesus is hard. <coughs> it will mean taking decisions that you and other people around you think are mad. You will need God to come through for you if you live trusting God. And so you'll pray big prayers. We've given up the old way, or we should have done, of putting a religious veneer on selfishness and doing what we like. Instead, we live day by day, having to pray big things and see God answers, relying on him to do that. The pictures God has given us of service, of humility, of being fishers for other people, our personal challenge now, what does it look like to be a church in the time of coronavirus? It's huge, big, difficult things. People who have faith in God in those situations will be praying big prayers and seeing God answer them. And there's a question again for us as a church. Does that mark us? I fear sometimes it doesn't. 
we're happy with the with the temple style worship. Some where you come, the bit where you come together and you see people and you have a nice time. But then when we say we're gathering to pray, everyone's too busy for that. Maybe this disruption is a good time for us to think about that too. So it's believing prayer is the first mark, but it's while praying forgive. Jesus has given us lots of pictures in Mark of a Christian. A Christian is someone who hugs an insignificant person, welcomes them. A Christian is a person who fishes for other people to come to know Jesus. Here's another picture, a picture of a Christian. A Christian is a person who prays and while they're praying forgives. That's the posture of a Christian life. The definition of Christian activity is praying and forgiving. And being pulled into this life the life of faith in God is a huge ask. It's going to involve daily repentance, pulling away from a false, easy religion that doesn't show what God is like, to trust God and ask crazy things for him in dependence and constantly have that attitude of forgiveness to the world. But those are the marks of this new way of relating to God, the kingdom of God that Jesus offers, not that always been thrown into the sea. It's a big ask, this praying, forgiving life. But who's asking? It's the one you should listen to and the one you can trust to put you first. It is the king who serves. Oh, it's all a bit awkward. Shall we just wriggle about and do some religious stuff instead? No, because the servant will judge that. And as we repent and we're called into this life of crazy service, the judge commands that we have a heavy dependence on God in prayer for unlikely things and we are marked as people who forgive our enemies. Can you imagine the church, the family, the Christian, the group of people that bear God's name really living like that? We should be able to imagine it. And we should walk towards it in repentance and faith because the leader who leads us there is the one who can be trusted. Let's pray. Just take a few moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you give us a King in Jesus who will always put us first. And we thank you, you're so committed to the world knowing what you're really like, that you're ready to judge false religion. And we thank you, even though we're scared, that what you're inviting us into is this life of stretching faith and continual forgiveness. We thank you, Heavenly Father. 
and we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.